Welcome to the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. We have a heart for you, sister, and a God-sized vision that you become a mighty, awe-filled woman of God who knows, believes, and shares God's Word in your areas of influence. And so we fervently pray Colossians 3, 16 through 17 over you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You are listening to the Dayton Women in the Word Summer Study Series through the Book of Hosea. Over the next eight weeks, our podcast episodes will consist of recordings of our content time each week during the study. Our prayer is that, as Hosea 6 says, that our listeners and those who are following along either live or from afar, that you will be inspired and encouraged to return to the Lord. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Welcome to session five. You're here. You made it. I'm proud of you. Tonight we're going over Hosea 6.4 through 7.16. Got a couple of sections for you. The first um, is just over the first few verses. Um, Give them your heart. The second is covenant breakers. The third, we'll go over all those pictures of unfaithfulness, and then we will round out talking about the love of Jesus. And of course, your homework for next week. Before we get started, I'm going to pray. So if you'll please pray with me. Father, we come tonight. um, Maybe we are ready to receive your word. Maybe we aren't. Uh, Maybe we've given our hearts to you today. Maybe we haven't. Either way, God, whatever we've done, we haven't done it perfectly. And so we say um, we're coming to you small and humble tonight. Um, and I just want to say on behalf of all the women in this room that we, we, whether we show it with our actions or not, we want to know you, God. We want to come back to you. And sometimes we just don't know how. So God, would you show us tonight uh, why we should come back to you, why you want us back and what we have done that separated us from you, Um, and I pray just through some of the more difficult themes that we're talking about tonight, some of the heavier topics, God, that you would just um, help us to sit a little bit in in that and not to rush past it too fast, God, Um, to listen in to what you're saying um, to Israel and to us, and but God, I just pray that your spirit would be here Um, giving us hope for how to live today, um, for how to act uh, in Christ, 
um, for what um, our identity is, God, that we wouldn't leave here questioning what to do next, but you would give us each um, a word for how to move forward in love and obedience toward you. In the name of Jesus, amen. All righty. Last week, we worked through chapters 4, 5, and the beginning few verses of 6. We talked about God's case against Israel. We learned what God's plan was. His plan was to withdraw himself from his people until they humbled themselves and returned. Then we wrapped up focusing on Hosea's call to return to the Lord for healing and for life. And we talked about pressing on to know him together with the family of God. So it's with that in mind that we start today. And we're first going to talk about what follows that call to return to the Lord and live. And it's this response from God. We're going to start reading in chapter 6, verse 4. This is God speaking. He says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. God is being so fatherly here. The ESV study Bible notes describe this as an outburst of emotion from God. God hears what seems to us an earnest proclamation from Israel, and he responds with, what am I going to do with you, child? Now, almost all of us have been on the giving or the receiving end of a phrase like this as a parent or as a child. Surely you can think of a situation where you've thrown up your hands in desperation and felt helpless to change another person in your life. I'm going to give you a little example from my own life to start us off tonight. One of my daughters has a habit of putting her hair in her mouth and nose. I have no idea why she does this. She has no idea why she does this. No one has any idea why she does this, but she does it, and I ask her, approximately 12,000 times a day to take it out of her hair or out of her nose and mouth. Sometimes I just yell like hair or I like click my fingers or I like, (laughs) it exhausts me. And I just want to say, child, what am I going to do with you? This behavior has no benefit for you. Is this ever going to change? I do say that sometimes, so... I'm sure she has my lecture memorized, but of course, my thoughts, my emotions are marked with sin. God's are not, but God is a God of emotions, and he is showing them to us here. If anything, this reminds us that it's okay to be saddened by sin. It's okay to have what we would call negative feelings in response to the disappointments that we have in this sinful world. So what is giving God this sort of emotion toward Israel? This is the second part of the the verse. It's their fickle love. God says their love's like a misty cloud or a morning dew. So it is fleeting, comes and goes. It disappears and reappears constantly. It is not enduring. God, on the other hand, in the verse before, says he's sure as the dawn. 
It's like he's saying, I'm 100% guaranteed to love you forever, and you are 100% guaranteed not to love me back. Now, the word for love here is hesed, the word for love that we talked about a few times back. It's the same word for love in chapter 2, where God is making his marriage vows and promising to bring hesed into his marriage with Israel. And it's in chapter 4, verse 1, where he says there's no hesed in the land. And we're going to see it in a a few verses again when God talks about how he wants hesed and not sacrifice. So remember, hesed, this is the steadfast love of the Lord. This is enduring love, faithful love, relational, lasting love. This is the love that God has for us and the love that God wants from us. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But first, God says a big therefore, and so we pay attention. Verse 5, therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. So he says that what he's done in response to their fickle love is to punish them. The word hewn was really strange to me, so I looked it up. And it means to dig out or to cut out, like you cut a stone out of a quarry or dig out a well. And this is how God is describing his punishment. He's saying that he uses the prophets to do this. So the words of the prophets, like the words of Hosea, are meant to dig up and cut out all of the mess that is in their hearts. But it's not just the words of the prophets that do this. God says the words from his own mouth do this too. And it says God's words slay them. Hebrews 4.12 echoes this idea. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So when we encounter God's word, the words of the prophets, it changes us. That can come in the form of encouragement or the form of conviction. We've all had experiences like this. You're reading the word, you're minding your own business, just trying to have, understand what is happening in the text, when bam, God hits you with a verse, totally knocks you out. As a friend of mine described it this week, she said, we learn what's what and what ain't. Sometimes the word just slays us. It knocks us out. It feels like a sucker punch. It feels like God is digging up messy stuff in our hearts and cutting it out, and it hurts. So his punishment, he's saying, is going to be painful, and it's going to be cutting. Yes, but he also describes his judgment as light. The CSB translates this part of the verse um, as, my judgment strikes like lightning. So just like Hebrews says the word exposes our thoughts and intentions, light also exposes things. The sins of Israel are being brought into the light. They won't be able to escape God's judgment, and neither can we. Now we'd be remiss if we didn't point out that Jesus calls himself the light of the world. And John 3.19 says, and this is the judgment. The light, Jesus, has come into the world. 
And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Sounds familiar. And yet Jesus wants to bring us out of the darkness. Later in John, in chapter 12, it says, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And remember last week, 1 Peter 2.9, Jesus calls us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In Christ, the light is good, but for an unrepentant heart, the light is devastating. So what does God really want from us? Does he want obedience or does he want love? I think you know the answer, but let's look at verse 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What God wants most is said from his people. He wants steadfast love. He's concerned about the posture of our hearts more than our behavior. But that doesn't mean he's not concerned about our behavior. Hosea has described for us many of the behaviors of the Israelites that God does not approve of and will not tolerate. So how do we reconcile this? Why does God say that the heart is most important? Because God knows that when our hearts are wholly devoted to him, we will respond to him in obedience. He made us to be lovers, so... We'll want to do what he asks us to do because we love him and it pleases him and we want to bring him glory. If he only required obedience, we could try to do that without loving him. And we do. We definitely do. The posture of our hearts informs our behavior and not the other way around. Sure, we can do righteous things without loving God. There are tons of Non-believers out there doing moral things. But who are they doing them for? If not for God, then who? They're doing it for their own glory or for the approval of others. The Israelites were bringing their sacrifices to God. They were doing their regular religious duties, but their hearts were far away from him. This is a dangerous place to be. This is what we saw from the Pharisees in Jesus' time. The Pharisees have a bad reputation, but they started out with what seemed like good motives. What they believed was that if everyone could just keep the law perfectly, the Messiah would come. This is why they were so concerned about everyone's behavior, but they missed the whole point. This verse that we're looking at right now, Hosea 6.6, was actually one of Jesus' favorites. Matthew records him using it twice. And you guys looked at this this week, Matthew 9, 10 through 13, and Matthew 12, 7. In the first instance, the Pharisees are asking Jesus why he eats with unclean people, tax collectors, sinners. And in the second instance, they're accusing him of breaking the Sabbath law. He tells them, go and learn what this means. I desire said, not sacrifice. He's saying, guys, you aren't getting it. Something bigger is happening here, and if you understood it, you wouldn't be picking fights with me. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the great physician who came to heal the sick, the sick in heart. So come close to me. Follow me. It's not about religious duties. It is all about your heart. 
God wants our hearts. He wants our devotion. He wants our all, our everything, all of us. He doesn't want to share us, and he shouldn't have to. Nothing and no one compares to him. No one is faithful like him. No one loves like he does. No one provides like he does. No other God has gone the outrageous lengths that he has to come after us or any lengths at all. Tim Chester says this, think about a human marriage. Which husband wants a wife who serves his meals at six every evening but doesn't love him? Who wants a wife who serves with resentment, who serves while she dreams of the lovers she wishes she could have? Who wants a cold, loveless marriage of mere formality and duty? Religious duties without love for God are an attempt to manipulate or bribe him. God does not want our rituals. He wants your hearts. And when our hearts are not in it, our rituals become a burden to God. Sisters, he wants you. He wants your love. He wants your affections, and he wants you to know him. If there are any areas in your life where you're trying to offer God a sacrifice instead of loving him, I beg you tonight to just give him your heart instead. Don't just try harder to be perfect. Don't give him your church attendance or your community service hours or your good deeds. Give him your heart. If you're trying to be on your best behavior so he'll give you what you want, I beg you to lay your desires down in front of him, before him in prayer. Ask him to help you to trust him. He loves you and he wants good for you. So give him your heart. Press on to know him. When you know him, you'll want to give him your heart. Discover what it looks like to delight in him just for who he is, not for what he can give to you. The more we know him, the more we will love him. Now, we can't ignore the fact here that we actually can't love God the way that he loves us. It's impossible because he loves us perfectly, and we love him perfectly. We can never return his love in equal measure. It seems like he's asking something impossible of us. And the next section is a perfect example of this. Let's read, starting in verse 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria. For they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face." Okay, so God says Israel has broken the covenant like Adam did way back in Genesis. So maybe like me, you did a little double take here and you said, wait, what? There was a covenant with Adam? Did Adam and God make a covenant? Did I miss that? 
Let's go back. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now the Hebrew word for covenant is not used here like it is in the other covenants. Just because the word isn't there to identify it doesn't mean that the covenant doesn't exist there. There's a formal binding here of two parties in relationship making a commitment, a definition that should sound familiar if you looked up covenant this week. And there's a consequence for breaking it. So we can consider this a covenant. So Adam, Israel, and all of us have broken covenant with God. We've all violated his created order and his commands given in Scripture. We know Romans 5.14 says, All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All includes Israel. All includes us. We have betrayed God. We have expressed fickle love. And God takes covenant very seriously. He is the perfect covenant keeper. He takes it so seriously that he commanded the Israelites in Deuteronomy 17 to stone any man or woman that they found who was breaking the covenant. God takes so seriously seriously his set-apart people that he commands them to purge all of the evil out of their midst. So for God to say that all of Israel has broken the covenant is a really serious deal. So they've broken the covenant, and then God moves into an explanation of what he means when he says they've dealt faithlessly with him. He describes Gilead, which is a place of fertile ground that was highly sought after. He describes that as a place of evil and bloodshed. He describes the priests, which are, were supposed to be holy, as robbers, murderers, villains. It's a strong language. They were supposed to be servants of God. We talked a lot about this last week in chapters 4 and 5. He also says Israel's whoredom is horrible in his eyes. Whoredom, idol worship, unfaithfulness are horrible to God. They hurt him and they insult him. And in verse 11... God proclaims that a harvest is coming. Now, harvest is supposed to be a celebration, celebration of God's provision, but this is not going to be a celebratory harvest. This is a harvest of judgment. And we see uh, this theme other places, um, namely Joel and and Revelation. Joel 3.13 describes it this way. Put in the sickle. That's the thing that you cut wheat with. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. And then Revelation 14. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. So the harvest here is a metaphor for God's judgment. 
the thing that is ripe is the people's sin. They have sown sin, and they will reap eternal punishment. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. That's what we see happening here. Now contrast that picture of judgment with what we see in the next lines. God says he's going to restore the fortunes of his people and heal them. And this seems a little out of place. At least it did to me. So why is it here? A few weeks ago, we talked about the fact that prophecies were meant to warn God's people of coming judgment, but they could be reversed if only the people would repent. Since the beginning of time, God has been walking with his people through a cycle of judgment and restoration. And the cycle is not going to end until the day of the Lord when Jesus comes and returns to judge the world and that harvest of judgment happens. Psalm 126 gives us a picture of what final restoration will look like for the people of God. It repeats this phrase, restore our fortunes. It says, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seeds for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So that's a picture of a restorative kind of harvest. God's so generous, he's so merciful to continue to heal and restore us, even though he doesn't have to. This made me think of another mom confession for you guys tonight. (laughs) I get really tired of putting Band-Aids on my kids when they don't actually need Band-Aids. Also, when they do need them, it's a whole thing. I usually pick the wrong kind of Band-Aid, not the right size, character, you name it. And I get tired of holding them when they're screaming in my ear about their injury that might not really be an injury. I'm terrible at remembering to give them medicine at the right times of day. I'm not always compassionate. I'm not a great healer, naturally. It's not my gift. But God, God, he comes and heals us over and over and over. He never gets tired of this. He never gets tired of loving us. He never tires of kissing our boo-boos and stroking our hair and comforting us. And he also isn't afraid to tell us like any wise doctor would what we can do to keep from hurting ourselves next time. He doesn't get tired of that either. He pours out his wisdom on us. He provides for us abundantly in his word if only we'll just come to him. So if you're here tonight or if you're listening and you're longing to be healed physically or spiritually, if you've been waiting for God to restore a broken relationship, I just want to say to you, take heart and keep praying. Don't give up on God. Keep moving forward toward him, toward our healer, not away from him. And if you're in need of prayer for healing tonight, please come and see me afterward. I would love to pray with you. Our sins need to be healed to, or need to be revealed to be healed. We have to know that we are sick to be healed, to want healing. So the judgment must be proclaimed so that Israel knows 
they are sick. Like Jesus said in Matthew 9, he came for the sick. He came for the people who knew that they needed healing. In this way, God's judgment and discipline are are part of his grace. He's showing his grace by bringing attention to the sin and not letting them sit in it any longer. So it's a gracious and merciful God here at the beginning of chapter 7 that's exposing the details of Israel's sin. They deal falsely, thieves break in, bandits raid outside. They're doing all kinds of evil out there, and they're not thinking about God. They aren't thinking about his eyes on them, him seeing them as they commit these acts of what he calls treachery. They forget. He sees and knows everything. I like the way um, commentator Derek Kidner paraphrases this verse, uh, verse 2. He says, guilt does not fade with time. It wraps the people around it stares God in the face. Everyone is going to have to answer to God for their behavior. God is trying to bring it to their attention. Psalm 90 verse 8 says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. God sees their sin, and he wants them to see it too. So Israel's broken the covenant. The relationship is broken. The mutual love that once defined their relationship is gone. Israelites have not given God their hearts. They're just going through the motions of religion, trying to manipulate God and get what they want. So God's trying to show them through Hosea's words that they are sick and they need healing. And so... God moves in to expand this message with some pictures. His aim is to help them fully understand what he's talking about with some word pictures from their everyday life. So I'm going to read the first one. Picture number one, our heated oven. Chapter 7, verse 3. By their evil they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night, their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. So first, God sets the scene in the palace. The evil acts of the people are actually enjoyable to the kings and princes. Their wicked behavior may make the royals happy, but it does not honor God. So it reminded me of Romans 1, where it says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. God gives us a picture here of people who know they are sinning and they're approving the sin of others. God calls all of them adulterers. People are cheating on him, not just with Baal, but also with their leaders. So it's these people who God's comparing to a heated oven that a baker has left 
unstirred. So here's a little picture of um, an idea of what an ancient Israelite oven would look like. They're on the move quite a bit, right? So this is an oven that they could have just made at any place. So this is possibly what their oven might look like. But so I want you to have that picture in mind as we're thinking about this. So typically, if you know anything about building fires, you've got to keep stirring and stoking a fire to keep it alive, and especially if you're cooking, to cook your food thoroughly. So the baker, God describes, has left the fire for a long time, but it's still growing. So God's saying here that Israel's sin is overheating. They are on fire for sin. The fire doesn't even need to be stoked because their sin is feeding on more sin and the fire keeps growing. Now in verse 5, God describes what sounds kind of like a royal anniversary party here in the palace where everyone's drunk, everyone's conspiring um, with traitors, the CSB says. And then God continues on with this oven analogy. Um, The NASB says, their hearts are like an oven as they approach their plotting. Their anger is out of control. All moral restraint is released. Their sin explodes. Everyone's on fire with sin, and the fire consumes them all, including the kings. And all of this has been done without consulting God. They don't care a bit about what he thinks. And this should be a great warning sign for us. Giving into sin, even what seems like a small sin or small ways, it fuels other sins. Listening to that one little bit of gossip or taking that one sip of alcohol or looking at just one graphic image on your phone. I don't know what it is for you, but these seemingly little small sins are not small to God. Engaging in these little sins is like throwing fuel on the fire. If there's something tonight that you're trying to convince yourself is no big deal, something small that you think you can control on your own, confess it to the Lord. He will receive you in forgiveness. Bring it to the light now and don't let it grow. Take a big old fire hose to that sin by the power of the Spirit, okay? (laughs) Don't let it grow. The the next picture kind of continues this baking theme. Verse 8, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. So in these little ovens, they would throw some dough onto the side. That's how they would cook it, okay? Um... Delicious, right? Looking so good. Um, so this, this metaphor, he's talking about some dough that's been thrown onto the hot surface here, onto the side of the oven, but it's not turned. So the one side's burnt, the other side is not cooked. So neither side is edible. It's just useless and distasteful. And Israel's like this because they've mixed with the people of the land, the Canaanites. So they're neither 100% for Baal or 100% for God. They are lukewarm for both. So this means they're no longer set apart. They're not different anymore. They're no longer useful for the purpose of displaying God's goodness to the world. 
They were meant to be holy and distinct, but they were blending in. Psalm 106 reminds us why. It says, They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. And Revelation 3 gives us a similar warning to the lukewarm church in Laodicea. Man, this is so convicting always whenever I read it. It says, I know your works, says Jesus talking. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What a warning for this. What a warning for us in this age where it's easy to be so lukewarm. It is easy for us to take a little wisdom from this person on Instagram or this pastor from across the country or this self-help podcast. May we be women who desire to give our full allegiance to God, women who are set apart as holy for him, And fully assured that what makes us holy is the blood of Jesus alone. May we be women who are distinct from our culture. Women who look different from the world around us. Women who make life with God look attractive. Like a fully baked cake. (laughs) Very attractive. We know our holiness will not be attractive to everyone. It certainly pushes some people away. But... Let us refuse to compromise and continue to practice the way of Jesus with conviction. That's what he's calling us to. All right, I'm out of pictures. I'm sorry, I didn't think you wanted to see a middle-aged man. Google did not have much to offer in that area, so I just quit. (laughs) I just stopped. Okay. Verses 9 and 10. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. So this is a picture of a middle-aged man. He's oblivious that he's aging. He's still trying to hold on to his youth. He's losing strength, but he doesn't notice. His prime season of prosperity is over, but he's totally unaware of what is coming next. This is Israel. They're arrogant. They've just been through a prosperous season. Now they won't return to God. They're not looking for him because they don't think that they need him. Can you guys relate to this at all? We live in a very prosperous country where it's easy to go about our whole lives without wanting for anything. It is easy to forget God and blame our circumstances on other people or the government or something else instead of remembering that God is in control over it all. Man, I just pray that we never wake up one day like this gray-haired man thinking we have it all together, everything in control, full of pride, oblivious to God's work in our lives. May we always be awake and in tune to what God is doing. His work is all around us, if only we would look. The fourth picture is of a silly dove. Verse 11. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. 
As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. God's comparing Israel now to a simple, gullible, senseless bird. They have no discernment to make wise choices, and they're easily influenced by outside counsel. They flit back and forth from Egypt to Assyria when they need help, and all the while they are ignoring the Lord. God says as they are flying away to these other places, he's going to catch them in his net and bring them down. God's going to trap Israel in the net as an act of discipline. They cannot be trusted to fly free because they continue to fly toward disaster. We talked about wisdom last week and where we get it. You remember, wisdom only comes from the Lord. This is God's refrain for Israel. This is his refrain for us. Come back to me. I'm the only one you can trust for truth and life and safety. Just come back. They were looking for help. They were looking for security in other places. The people of God will always be lost and restless without him. We so desperately need him, and it is silly and senseless when we try to meet our needs outside of him. Are we almighty that we can solve our own problems? Is our government or our church or our community or our spouse? There is only one who is almighty. Only one who gives his little doves a safe place to land. Now God is doing his thing he's doing in Hosea, and he's interrupting the pictures here with another cry of emotion. Verse 13, he says, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained them and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. Israel has left God in rebellion, and he is expressing here that he would redeem them. He wants to redeem them, but he says they speak lies against him. They aren't coming to him to receive the redemption that he wants to give. And he gives us a peek into their bedrooms where they're crying out for help, but not from a pure heart. They're focusing again on the provisions, not the provider. They're crying out for their daily bread, but they have no desire for God's kingdom to come. They're doing another religious act, praying, but their hearts are in rebellion and not actually focused on God. God says he's the one who trained them and he made them strong, but they refuse to acknowledge how he provided for them in the past. All they're concerned with is their next meal. Psalm 78 says, But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Like we saw earlier, the breaking of the covenant is painful to God. It's as if Israel is a child throwing a temper tantrum in her room, screaming at her father until she gets what she wants. 
And all the while, the father is outside in the hall, and he's desiring just that his daughter would come turn to him and run to him and remember that he's always given her everything that she needs. Derek Kidner says, they are sinning against love. They are rebelling against the steadfast love of a father. They're not rebelling against a cruel authority. This is why God is so full of emotion. Everything he does, he does out of love for them. But they either mistake his provision for bales or they mistake his love for punishment. And we too can focus on what we consider bad circumstances and think God is punishing us or that he doesn't love us. We can shake our fists at him and get mad at him because he doesn't give us what we want. Especially when what we want is a good thing. A ministry opportunity or a husband or a child or a job or, or, or. The list goes on and on. Whatever we think we deserve. But these things aren't bad. They're absolutely gifts from God. A kind, loving God. But God's the true gift. It's not his bread or wine. It's not marriage. It's not motherhood or anything else. God is both provider and provision. He's giver and gift. If we're just interested in what he can give us, we are missing out and we will be disappointed. We'll never be satisfied. And if we're his, God will take away those gifts so he can have our, his, so he can have our complete affections. He'll take those things away. God is emotional over this. It grieves him, and rightly so. The last picture God gives us here is of a faulty bow. Verse 16 says, They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. So God's now bringing out the wartime language because people used to fight wars with bow and arrow. He describes Israel as a crooked bow. There's another place where we find this metaphor, Psalm 78. It says, yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. So verse 16 says the Israelites return, but they don't return upward to him. They go through the motions of repentance, but they don't respond by giving their lives fully to God. They point the arrow toward God initially, but it bends away and misses the target. I think this is a truly excellent description of what humans are like. We start out our Sunday with worship and praise, right? And then we're arguing in the car on the way home. We start our day in the Word. And then by breakfast, we're already stressed out. We're worrying. We meet with our fellow believers. We're full of hope. And then by bedtime, we're falling back into the sin that we just asked people for prayer for. Sisters, we are so prone to wander. We need each other 
desperately. We need to surround ourselves with trusted sisters who are going to speak life over us and encourage us every single day. Feel free to grab hands again, you guys. I'm for it. Your sisters are all around you here. Hebrews 3.13 is where we find this call. It's a call to encourage each other daily, as long as it is called today. We need each other, and we need the scriptures to help our arrows fly straight. Not too long ago, Kelly posted an Elizabeth Elliott quote on our Instagram page that I have loved since the first time that I heard it, and so I'm going to repeat it for you here. She says, The word of God I think of as a straight edge, which shows up our own crookedness. We can't really tell how crooked our thinking is until we line it up with a straight edge of Scripture. It is the love of a father, the sacrifice of the son, and the presence of the Holy Spirit that ensures that we are going to hit the target in this life. We can't straighten ourselves out. We need something outside of us to show us what straight looks like. And then we need someone to come and straighten us. Thanks be to God, this has been done for us in Jesus. Now God ends this section by saying that the Israelite uh, rulers are going to die in battle as a consequence for their hateful speech against him and that they're going to be mocked and made fun of in Egypt. God has been very clear in this section. The Israelites have not turned to him in true repentance and they are going to be punished. They will experience trial. They will experience suffering for the way that they have interacted with him. The consequences are fierce. They are sure. And trouble is coming. And there is more coming as we continue through the rest of Hosea. This is not the end. God wants us to sit in this for a while this summer, ladies. And he wants to make sure that the Israelites and us are totally clear on the reasons that judgment is coming. But for us as believers in Jesus, where is the hope in all of this? I said earlier tonight that it's impossible for us to love God the way that he loves us, but that's what he's asking us to do. So how can we possibly achieve that? God gives us a clue about how this works in Jeremiah 24-7. This is just one of the many places that he talks about giving us a new heart. He says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. This is a promise. He says he will do it. It will happen. God knows that we can't love him on our own. He knows that we need outside help to return his love. So he promises to give us a heart that can love him back. Now, 1 John 4 explains how this works and how this happens as believers in Jesus, how we get this new heart. It says, In this, the love of God was made manifest, was shown among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
John says that the good news is not that we have done such a great job at loving God that he accepted us, but that Jesus did. He has done a perfect job of loving God and loving us. Jesus showed us perfect love by living a blameless life that the Father could accept so that by his life we could be accepted as well. And Jesus' love for the Father is shown by his obedience. And God is satisfied in Jesus' sacrificial love that's shown on the cross. God freely loves us, and he always has. He is a perfect lover, and so is Jesus. Jesus' love is not fickle. He returns the hesed love of the Father with the very same perfect hesed. And so, because of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, we take on his track record of perfect love. Through Jesus, our imperfect human love is perfected. Our polluted love is made pure. Our divided love moves in one direction. In Christ, we can return God's hesed. Lovers. This is our status. Before God, we are lovers. Jesus secured that with his blood. It is sure. And one day, we will return God's love fully and perfectly. We'll see him face to face in that better country that we are destined for. We will enjoy unbroken covenant, perfect marriage with God. Right now, though, we are still in the process of being perfected by the Spirit. And being perfected in love looks like two things. Getting better at giving love to others and getting better at receiving love from God. Jesus' blood has the power to reverse all of these similes that we talked about tonight. If we are an oven, we can be one that is on fire for the Lord. If we are a cake, we can be a perfectly baked one that reflects the beauty of our maker. If we have gray hairs, they'll be a sign of wisdom from God. If we're a dove, we can be one that's secure and at peace. And if we're a bow, we can be one that hits the mark every time. He is the one who calls us to repentance and gives us hope for total restoration. He is the gift. Let's thank him together. Father, we thank you for being a gift to us, for sending Jesus as a gift to us, for enduring through generations and generations and generations of sinful, disobedient people, for planning all the way back in Genesis to send one who would crush the serpent's head. Thank you for pursuing Israel and pursuing us, for showing us how sick we are, and then being ever available to heal us if we'd only come to you. So, God, tonight I say, uh, help us come to you. Give us that new heart that wants to come to you. 
Help us to see you as you are, because when we do, we can't help but come to you. We can't help but love you. We can't help but serve you. Overwhelm us, God. Do a new thing here in our hearts. Bring revival by your spirit to the women in this room, the women throughout this study, the women all over our city, our country, the world. We know that you're going to keep pursuing us. You've made that very clear so far. Help us to pursue you, to press on, to know you, to keep pressing this summer and listening being open to what you might reveal. Being okay with the fact that it might hurt for a little while before you heal us. God, thank you for being so faithful. Help us to act faithfully toward you and not unfaithfully. Thank you that Jesus makes that a possibility for us but because of his blood, we can. Change is possible. So give us hope, God, that you can change those situations in our lives, but more, even more, and especially that you can change our hearts and give us new perspective on those situations. Jesus, we love you. We're overwhelmed by what you have taught us here and what you've done. Continue to do this good work in us this summer. Amen. Okay, homework, quickly. Same spiel. Your um, reading for this week is Hosea 8 through 10. They're short, pretty short chapters. So you've got your discussion questions. Do your response questions hand out if you want to. If you're liking that, keep it up. The tool this week is outlining. This is not everyone's favorite. I dare say no one's favorite. But I encourage you to try it. It is super helpful to see the structure of a passage and, and watch the flow of God's argument of what he's trying to say can really help to clarify what he's doing in a passage. So our tip is just to pay attention to the similes. There were quite a few of them this week, but there are more coming next week. So those like or as statements, pay attention to those, and that can help you to form a structure or an outline. Basically, all you're doing is taking a look at the passage and making headings and um, and points underneath um, in a structure. You can do this any way you like. You can do it with numbers or bullets or pictures or whatever. It's just a way of organizing thoughts. So we'll talk more about this uh, on, on social media this week for sure. But if you have any questions specifically, um, let me know. We'll probably show a bunch of different people's outlines to give you an idea of what things look like. So thank you, ladies. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. For more resources and encouragement about how to go deep in God's Word, 
visit us at DaytonWomenInTheWord.com on Instagram and Facebook. May you dwell richly in his word today, sister.